Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we're going to continue our series we've been in. uh, This is week four of our series, Catch You on the Flip Side. And this series is all about death and the afterlife. And I know it's kind of a morbid topic, but it's something that we all have to deal with eventually, that we all have to think about in some form or another. And so we've tried to go through and look at this topic in sort of a broad, sweeping way. And uh, so we've talked about death in general, and we'll talk about that a little bit more today too, what happens after you die, that sort of thing. We've talked about both heaven and hell. And so here's kind of the theme idea, the the emphasis behind why we're talking about this topic, why we're doing this series. And it's simply this, what you believe about death will affect your actions in life. And that's absolutely true. Whatever your belief is about death and the afterlife will have some bearing on how you live this life. No matter where you fall on the spectrum, I don't believe anything happens. Well, that will in some ways affect how you live this life. Well, I believe everybody goes to heaven. And that will in some way affect how you live this life. Well, I believe, you know, you get there based on good works. That will affect in some way how you live this life. And so uh, that's why we're talking about this maybe difficult topic. It's a hard one to wrestle with. So... This week and next week, we have asked for you to submit questions about this topic, and that's what we're going to do is we're going to do sort of a Q&A. We have three questions this week and three next week, and I'll be honest, this, week, this week's questions, I kind of did the easier ones first to, get, to kind of get me in a rhythm, and next week, if you're here, we're going to talk about some pretty, uh, pretty heavy sort of topics and even maybe controversial topics in some ways about death and the afterlife. And so this week's kind of a warm-up to get the blood flowing, get us thinking, all right? And then next week, we're going to hit some really heavy topics. So hopefully you're here for that. Uh, really good questions. All, all six of these questions are good ones. And so that's where we're going to go this week and next week. So three questions today, uh, and they're not completely connected, but the first two are making a connection. You'll see why. So let's just jump in right into it, okay? The first question that was submitted was this. Basically, where does the soul go after death? And I For purposes of clarity, sometimes I've condensed the questions, uh, and that was the main idea. But another part of that question was, does the soul go to heaven immediately, or does the soul stay with the body until the rapture? Which, that's a very interesting word that we will talk about uh, with this question. So some of this material, you may, if you were here on Easter, you may have heard this before, because we talked a bit about this, but we're going to hit it again to answer this question head on. Where does the soul go immediately upon death? What happens to that, that part of us that on an x-ray you don't find, on a scan you can't see, but it is actually who you really are. The soul is the essence of who you are. And so what happens to you, basically, right after you die? Philippians 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul gives us some instruction here. He says, For to me, living means living for Christ, And dying is even better. Paul's kind of a morbid guy, it sounds like, right? 
He says, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. But here's where he lands on this question. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. So notice here, it's hard to maybe see what he's getting at with this question, but he's saying, if I, if I leave this body, when I die, I'm with Christ. So notice he doesn't say, I'm going to die and then wait to be with Christ. I'm going to die and eventually maybe I'll get there. But he says, no, I'm, if I go, I will be with Christ. There's sort of this immediate thing where he, his, his soul, who he actually really is, will be with Christ immediately upon death. In another letter that he writes to the church in the city called Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, Paul again gives us a little bit more insight on this same idea. Here's what he says. So we are always confident. So he said we can be confident about this answer, okay? Even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, says it again, And we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. And other translations of this verse say to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Again, there's this immediacy that Paul has here. It's not like there's not a holding place for your soul. There's not like a shelf of souls somewhere in the afterlife that you're just plopped to until the rapture, which we'll talk about, and then we'll talk about why that's important in just a second. But what Paul's saying is, your body dies, your soul continues to live. You, do ne- you never die. You, the actual real you, who you are, never dies. The shell that you are inside of eventually dies. And that is buried in the ground or, as we'll see in a minute, maybe cremated or whatever. Um, but you actually never die. So the question is, though, what does the soul do? Well, it goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. But the other part of that question that I think helps to even flesh this out a little bit better is the question is about the rapture. Well, the rapture is known as the, re- the final resurrection of the dead. And we'll, we'll go through that in a minute. So if you're lost, don't worry, we'll, we'll catch up. We'll get you there, okay? <clears throat> but it does give us some more insight even to this. What, between like death and sort of the end of time in heaven, in eternity future, what does that middle part look like? And I'll be honest, the answer to most of these questions is the Bible doesn't give us a concrete, here's the answer to all the questions. Even, he even says in the verse we just read, we walk by faith, not by sight. There is an aspect of this that is just unknowable. But the Bible does give us a little bit here. So what about the rapture? How does that even fit in here? And I'm really glad that question was asked in that way because it lets me kind of add this to that part to help fill in some gaps there. So there are two passages in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4 that we'll read in a minute, and also 1 Corinthians 15, that sort of talk about this event called the rapture of the church or the the final resurrection of the dead, okay? And so we're going to work through 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 for just a minute, and then look at how that talk how that helps us to fill in the gap about okay i'm dead my soul's with the lord but what does that really mean and what about the dead the bodies being raised how does that fit in so we're going to look at that for just a couple minutes to help us flesh this question out even more so first thessalonians chapter four this is again paul paul has a lot of stuff to say about the afterlife as you can tell uh starting at verse 13 he writes this and now dear brothers and sisters 
we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. So he's, I want you to know. So that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. So see that right there? Even in that little half sentence, Paul is again telling us, when you die, your soul leaves the body and goes to one of two places. He's talking about here the believers who have died are in the presence of the Lord. So at this event that he's going to be talking about from here on out, he's saying really the first thing that happens is when Jesus returns, his second coming is another term that you may have heard before about the rapture. It says he will bring back with him the believers who have died. So the soul is not in the ground. It's not in the body. It's not dead. It's alive, and it's in the presence of God. So at the beginning of the rapture of the church, it says God will bring back with him really the souls of believers who have died. So then he goes on to say this. We tell you this directly from the Lord. That's a pretty powerful argument from authority there, okay? We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. What does that mean? So here's what he says. Here's the, here's the classic passage about the second coming of the Lord or the rapture of the church or the resurrection of the dead, okay? For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the command, a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Zombie apocalypse is upon us, okay? Not really. But then he says, then... Together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth, who are believers, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever, so encourage each other with these words. So we see here this, this idea of the rapture of the church or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it gives us sort of this timeline. When, when he ret- in his return, all the souls of the dead believers will, we, will sort of in essence come with him to a certain point. And then he, he lists two parts here. Before I get into the specifics, let me just say this about the rapture. We don't know when this event will happen Okay, people, you know, have written lots of books on when this will happen. Um, I think it was in 1988, there was the famous book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. I don't know if you noticed, it hasn't happened. So you know what happened in 1989? A second edition. No joke, you can look it up. 89 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1989. People have this fascination with when will the end come? When will Jesus come? And no one knows. Here's a funny thing. I wish I had the reference down, but Jesus even tells his followers, even the Son doesn't know. Only the Father in heaven knows. Pretty interesting. So, but we do know it's going to happen. In John 14, he tell, as he's telling his disciples, hey, think, from here on out, things are about to change really quickly. In about a week from now, I'm going to be in the ground dead, and then I'm going to rise from death, and then I'm going to leave and be gone forever, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. So here's how he says that in John 14. He says, if you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you? And then Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. 
So there's this thing that Jesus is not on the earth anymore. He sent the Holy Spirit to live among us, yes. But he says, hey, I left, but I will come again. I'll come back to get you. And then in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven, like his final moments on earth, uh, he gives the, the commission, you know, wait in Jerusalem for it to be endued with power from on high, from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. And then he ascends, like literally, ascends into heaven. And of course, the disciples are there kind of gazing up into the clouds. It says, I can't blame them. I probably would too if I'd seen someone float into the sky and disappear. I'm going to be looking up there for a while wondering when he's going to drop back down, you know. But then it says, as they're looking in the clouds, it says two angels come and tell them, hey, why are you looking up in the clouds? He said, go to Jerusalem. And then the angels say that in the same way that you saw him leave, he will return. So we have this promise of this event that will happen, and then this description of this event called the rapture or the second coming of Christ. We don't know when it will happen, but we do know that it will happen. So, um, and another thing to mention, as you read the New Testament, you when you read the writings of the disciples and followers and believers in Jesus, they had this expectation that this, this was going to happen any moment, okay? They had this belief. He, he said he'll come back for us. He'll say he'll come back for me. Like, he's talk, he was talking about me, right? You know, and this was a couple thousand years ago. And even when you read in 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages, even 30, 40 years later, they've, they've passed, and he hasn't come back yet. And People are already making fun of his believers. Oh, he said he was going to come back. It's been 30 years. Where is he? You know? So can you imagine how much more difficult it may be even for us to believe in this event? But it will happen, okay? And we wait for that day. That's, that's the hope that we have. So there's two parts of this event that Paul mentions, and I'm going to reverse them on purpose. So the second part of this rapture is it says... Uh, Believers who are alive on the earth, so if Jesus were to come back right now and we're here, we will experience this event. It says we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we, believers on the earth at the time of the rapture will not die a physical death. Sign me up. Like, that's why the last verse in the Bible in Revelation says, Lord Jesus, come quickly. John is hoping this will happen before he dies. He wants to experience the rapture of the church, the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the second thing that will happen. But the first thing is the one that has to do more with with our soul. Okay, So it says, the bodies of dead believers will rise from their graves. Kind of creepy sounding, but it's just what it says is going to happen. But again, remember, the first thing that happens, it says that God brings back, or Jesus brings back with him, the souls of those who have already died in the faith. So the soul that's already existed is kind of there. It's coming back with him. Then the body is resurrected from the grave to kind of coincide with that soul and be in a way a glorified version of that body uh, as Jesus was. And we will exist in those bodies for all eternity. Okay. Now, there is a question that is not really answerable, but I just want to ask it to get us to maybe thinking about that. So in the meantime, let's say, let's say that someone that died 10 years ago, their soul is with the Lord wherever that is, however that is, right? And so the rapture hasn't happened yet. When that happens, their body will rise from the grave and meet their soul and be glorified in the way that, as Paul says, can actually handle the glory of heaven, okay? So are, is that person bodiless right now in the presence of God? It's possible. Now, this is a belief that the ancient Greeks would have loved, 
because they didn't want bodies in heaven. They thought, oh, that's gross. This body is nasty and it smells and it sweats and I don't want to have a body in heaven. No. So I just want to be a soul. So for a while, maybe they'll be kind of happy about that. We just don't quite know. Or maybe, you know, for a while they worked at Avis Rent-A-Car at the airport. Maybe you get a loner body for a while, you know, in between until your actual body. I don't know. It's possible. It doesn't really tell us anything about that. The only thing we do know is that our, the essence of who we are, our soul, will be in the presence of the Lord immediately upon death, and we will be consciously aware of what's going on. There's, a, there's an idea called soul sleep, where you're just kind of in hibernation mode. I don't think Scripture would support that view. You're consciously aware of your surroundings in the afterlife, either, either destination, immediately upon death. So after the rapture, we'll have, after the rapture, we'll have sort of our final body, our glorified body, if you will, which again sounds weird. Again, I don't have all the answers to all these questions, so stop asking. I guess I asked you to ask me the question, so that's not fair. So that's really the most that I, uh, that we can really see, or at least that I can see from scripture about this event. At death, your soul separates from your body and goes with the Lord. Are you bodiless? Maybe. Do you have sort of a, you know, kind of a robot loner? He just pulled it off the shelf. Oh, they're a size 32. Put that on the soul for a while until their actual body rises from the dead. Possibly. Well, we just don't know, but I can't wait to find out. It's going to be so cool. So loosely connected with that first question is the second question. And you might not see a connection, but I'm going to force one. We're going to make it, okay? So the second question that was submitted that we're going to look at today is, will you still go to heaven if you're cremated? Interesting. Will you go to heaven if you're cremated? So if we're going to have bodies in heaven, and if it includes at least some version of this body in some way that's kind of perfected, glorified, whatever, then what if you're cremated? What do we do about that? If there are going to be bodies, there are going to be hours in some form, what do you do? Well, Paul doesn't specifically talk about this, but I do want to read 1 Corinthians 15, a few verses here about the body. We've covered this a little bit a couple weeks ago. We're going to look at it again. 1 Corinthians 15, let's start at verse 35. So it's kind of the same question that was just asked. Paul says, but someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? And he says, what a foolish question. No offense to the questioner of this question, okay? When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. So it sounds like a fully intact body may be necessary. I don't know. Skip down to verse 42, that same chapter. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead that we just talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they'll be raised to live forever. We read this last week. Let's look at it again. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. So Paul sees this body as a seed. And so what's raised to life at the rapture is the final outgrowth from that seed in the body. But what if that seed has been burned up and earned up. What do you do about that? Where, where do we stand on that? What if, your, what if your seed was scattered all across the Atlantic Ocean because that was your final wish? Or in the Caribbean, you know, or at the Grand Canyon? What, what do we do about that? What do we, what, there's, not much, there's not much seed there to left to work with, is there? 
And the Bible doesn't say directly about this topic. So some would say, they'll point to 1 Corinthians, uh, I believe it's chapter 6, where Paul says, you're not your own, you're bought with the price, so glorify God with your body. Or let's say, well, you can't be cremated. Christians should be cremated. And I would say, well, if you read the direct context of 1 Corinthians 6, it's talking about sexual purity, not about cremation. Those are two totally separate topics that he's talking about. So he's talking about what you do with your body now matters. What you do with your, with your body now makes a difference. So glorify God with your body. It's not about cremation. Um, so what do we do about this? And I would look at this one verse from Isaiah 52 at, and look at Jesus as our example. So again, we're talking about, is cremation okay for a Christian? Should we stray away from that? Isaiah 52, verse 14. Isaiah sees this image in the future about Jesus. He says, But many were amazed when they saw him, Jesus. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. So Isaiah, the end of 52 in chapter 53, is this passage called the suffering servant. It is the, it is the gospel in a nutshell in the Old Testament. So Isaiah sees this vision of this person who will suffer for the sins of mankind 600 years before Jesus is ever born. Now that's prophecy for you right there. So that's what we see here. So even we know about the crucifixion of Jesus and how brutal that was. Uh, even that the word crucifixion from the Greeks where we get our word excruciating. That's the kind of pain he endured. Even before that, right, we know that he's beaten nearly to death. We know that his beard is plucked out. We know that he's whipped. Uh, the maximum amount by law that he can be whipped is 39 lashes with a whip that has several, you know, like bone and shards of glass on it, ripping flesh from his body. That's like the starter of this crucifixion thing. That happens first. Really, even before that, all night long, he's beaten by, his, by the high priest. They have these, this uh, trial, Jewish trial. They said he's blindfolded, and they beat him, and they say, okay, prophesy who hit you. So he's beaten up all night long, dragged through town all night long, nearly exhausted already. Then he goes on trial again before the Roman official Pilate. Then he's whipped nearly to death. Then he's got to carry his huge wooden cross all the way through town, up a hill, and then, then, after all that then he's nailed to it until he suffocates to death okay so isaiah gives us a pretty good view jesus was disfigured beyond recognition his body was a battered bloody mess not even didn't even look human when this is all said and done however after he's resurrected from the dead he's recognizable not just as a human but as him they know it's the same Jesus that we saw. That, that's what kind of freaked them out, right? We know we saw what happened to you three days ago, and we saw that you were put into the tomb, and now you're here, and you look different. You look really good, Jesus. Like, compared to how you looked three days ago, you're looking awesome. So I would use this as our example to loosely say the same thing about cremation, Okay. You doesn't, the seed doesn't have to be in perfect form to still for God to raise it from the dead. I would even look at the, the martyrs, uh, the, the disciples of Jesus who were martyred. They were beheaded. They were drawn and quartered. Some were sawn in half. Uh, they were crucified. I mean, brutal deaths. They were burned alive in some cases. Even martyrs today face the same sort of physical uh, punishment with their bodies. They're brutalized. They're beaten. They're burned or whatever. 
So they're disfigured. Uh, so I don't see how cremation would then, well, we can't, we can't do it this to the body, but the, you know, these people are okay. I don't see how that goes together. I would also say, what about people who are lost at sea? They're not buried in the ground, are they? So, oh, that God can't do anything with that. They're, they're just out of luck. No. What about uh, you know, people who are burned in a house fire or, or an explosion or whatever? They're, you can't find their remains. Oh, I guess they, God can't resurrect their body. Maybe they weren't really Christians. or No, we, we wouldn't say that. What about someone who's kidnapped and their body's never found? Or a POW, they, their body's never found? Does that mean that God can't still raise their body if they're a believer and connect it with their soul in this rapture and then they're in paradise? I think, that's, I think we can say that, right? So there's nothing that saves you about being buried. Okay? It just means that you decide you want to be in a box in one piece. That's all it is. You want to go on the ground. That's, you chose that. It's fine. There's nothing, that, there's nothing that we call salvific about that. It doesn't save you. So there's also that nothing that would disqualify you from faith just because you decide you want to be burned up prematurely, okay? It's not about the form that goes into the ground or ashes spread. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with it. And I would say, in fact, that happens, so that happens after you're dead anyway, and your fate's already sealed by that point. So whatever happens to your body, the shell of who you are, has no effect on the soul that's already gone. Your, your, your fate's already sealed one way or the other. So whatever you have chosen in your life to do with your body or whatever's done to your body, it, it doesn't have any bearing on if you go to heaven or not. So hopefully that makes sense. But that's a good question. I like that one. Here's a third question, and it is not related at all. So let's just, I wish we had like a palate cleanser machine for our brains that we could, you know, just get to the, the final course here. Uh, but it's a, it's a good question, and the question is, will there be one single language in heaven? The questioner asks, basically, does the Bible say anything about a heavenly language uh, in heaven? And it does talk about a heavenly language, and we'll talk about that, but maybe not in heaven. So let's read this, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to get all lovey-dovey here for a minute, the love chapter. And, but Paul answers that question for us, I think, to some degree in this passage. 1 Corinthians 13, let's start at verse number 8. Paul writes, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled or they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. I wish we had more men like that today. Amen? All right. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So the key text, the phrase here in this verse that gets to the answering the question is, he says, in some point in the future, tongues will cease. Now, there are two ways to take that. So let me get on sort of a tangent here for a second on the first way, because I do want to address that question where this verse is used often, and that would be this idea of cessationism, where spiritual gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 14, where this is right in the middle of, cease after the apostles, including the gift of speaking in tongues, okay? So that he... They would use this verse, a cessationist would say, well, he says tongues will cease, and so he must, he must be talking about after he's gone, after his generation is gone, this is no longer a viable spiritual gift because really none of them would be. And I would have 
two, two things about that. First, this passage is clearly pointing to a distant eternal time in the future. Not like it's the next, in 20 years, guys, this is gone, but I just want to write about it so you guys know what's going on. It's not talking about one or two generations in the future. It's way far in the future, in eternity future. And then secondly, like I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 13, where he's writing about tongues will cease. Well, in 1 Corinthians 11 or 12, he takes a lot of time to talk about spiritual gifts, including tongues. And then for chapter 13, and then chapter 14, he talks about it even more. So it's kind of like, you know, saying, uh, you know, in 20 years, cars are obsolete, but let me write down a manual about cars. Does it, why, why would he do that? Why would he take all the time to talk about personal gifts of tongues and public gifts of tongues and corporate tongues and all these gifts if in the middle he says, hey, yeah, those are gone. We don't need those. Does it, logically, it doesn't make any sense to me, so I don't, I don't really buy that, that this is talking about that sort of tongue ceasing. But to get to the specific part of that question is, though, eventually, if we're talking about in the future, will eventually, like, language cease to be a thing? Will we need that in heaven? And I would point us one more scripture as we we, we kind of wrap this up, is John's vision of heaven would seem to say, no, there's not just one language. Here's why I would put that or say that. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, this is John's vision of heaven. He says this, After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches with their hands. They were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. You know, to me, part of the beauty of heaven and eternity future is it includes all peoples all cultures all ways of you know living on this earth in a manner of speaking and languages like he even says every language is represented now just just a maybe a a thought check for a second we we know jesus didn't speak english right like, we know that. Like, we know the Bible is not written in English. It's been translated, right? So sometimes we have this Western-centric or American view of Jesus. And I think if we maybe, if we were able to see how he really looked and listen to how he really talked, and we'd be like, oh, I get it. I've been added into this whole thing. It's not that he's been added into this. Th- no, it's like he started this thing in the Middle East, as a Jewish guy, okay? So, yeah, he's not going to speak English. He's not going to dress like us or think like us or talk like us. It's, it's a different sort of culture. And so that helps us maybe to get over this idea a little bit. And so I don't think John is going to mention, he, he mentioned specifically every language is represented. Why would he see that vision of heaven and then we think, well, we're just all going to have one language? I don't think that really follows very well. But let's quickly put these two things together. 1 Corinthians 13 about tongue ceasing and Revelation 7 about every language is represented. Let's put these together for just a second. And I'll, I'll just, let me just take a time out. This is how I would personally define this view. You're not going to find this in, I'm not quoting a scripture. I'm giving you sort of my insight from putting these two ideas, these two verses together, okay? So somehow, some way, I don't know how, in heaven... All languages will be spoken, and all languages will be understood. I don't know how. Like, does, does my resurrected body have some sort of automatic translator 
in my perfected heavenly brain? Maybe. Am I going to have a personal angel to translate languages for me? I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like. I just know that John says in his revelation, his vision, all languages are there, and yet there's not going to be any barrier between people. We'll be able to communicate and know what's going on. We're not going to be like, wait, 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 what was that? Well, that song was in Latin. I don't, I don't know Latin. I didn't go to Catholic Mass as a kid, so I, could you repeat that? Could you help get, put that into English for me? It's like, how, de- how depressing would that be if we have to have everything like we have it now? We don't understand a lot of what goes on in the world. So the, the key there in, in 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul says, now we know in part like even the greatest linguists in the world may know a dozen languages, right? But how many hundreds of languages and dialects are there in the world? We know in part. But he says, but then we will fully know. So I don't know exactly what that means, but I believe that includes even language. We will fully know. And just to kind of tongue-in-cheek here, maybe that's why God gave us this gift of tongues. It's sort of practice for heaven. And I won't get into a theology of that because it's time to go. Uh, Luckily for me, that's my cop-out. No, but maybe, just maybe, that's why that spiritual gift has merit even now. It's sort of for, for those who have received that gift and operate in that gift biblically, correctly. Again, opening a can of worms here at the end, I understand. But if we're operating in it correctly, it may be, it may give us sort of a, a preview of what heaven might be like. I have this supernatural knowledge of languages I don't know. I'm able to at times understand them, but in heaven, that's going to be like all the time. So there could be a lot of non-Pentecostals in heaven who are shocked for a little bit if that's how it works. They may be like, wait a second. Did I go to the wrong heaven? Am I on the wrong floor? The wrong section? Did I, you know, what's going on? It's possible that uh, maybe that's what's going on here. So like I said every week so far about this topic of death and the afterlife, there are so many questions, and we can do our best, I think, to try to understand as much as we can, but we just can't know everything. And I think of it in terms of, think about famous explorers 500 years ago, 600 years ago, 1,000 years ago, who are literally charting new territory. So if I'm going on a vacation, I'm probably going to Google that location first. I have that ability now. I can see, oh, I want to go there because of this. Or when we go on that vacation, I want to do that. They don't have that ability hundreds of years ago, right? They're just going on a ship, and they're going to see what, they're going to find out what happens when they get there. They don't, no one's ever been there before. They have no background to go off of. They don't know anything. It's like they're flying blind. That's sort of what heaven is like. But I want us to see it as an adventure. This is going to be uncharted territory, but we know it's going to be good. That's the one thing we do know. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be, we talked about it last week, so if you missed it and we know why heaven's so great, listen to last week's message. We're going to know heaven is going to blow our minds. We can't begin to comprehend, the scripture says, all the things that God has planned for those who love him. And I'm ready to find out. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to, to find out. And I, my goal in life is to help others to Get there to experience that by God's grace through his forgiveness and the power of the cross to know that they can live that eternity as well.